Well, hello yet again, dear fellow horror lovers and exploitation enthusiasts. It's the irritating, obsessive nutter Andy Roberts here lurking in your lug holes once more. After giving your ears a bit of a clean, we can actually get down to the nitty-gritty of the situation, which is this podcast that you've tuned into. It's the same as every week, it's called The Nasty Pasty, and like most other podcasts, it's an internet-based episodic audio show that focuses on films in relation to the video nasties. This is a term bandied about for quite a while now, but essentially the video nasties were horror or exploitative films targeted by the UK government as being potentially obscene back in the 80s. This was mostly due to a tumultuous society where an unhappy populace required something to blame their troubles on. As is the case even today, the newspapers were insistent that something wasn't quite right, bringing to light the dangerous situation of having uncertified videotapes floating around for unsuspecting children to bring home. Painting nightmare pictures of our children's futures and linking all sorts of violent crimes to the subject, the government was forced to act, employing the police forces to raid video shops and distributors for the offending films. Around 150 titles were officially listed as being potentially dangerous, half of which were prosecutable and half which were confiscatable. I chose to highlight the ridiculousness of their actions by looking at films that are out at the same time which escaped this rather stringent treatment by the authorities. We're now on our 63rd episode and I'm covering the humble slasher yet again, though this time backwards slashers, set in the back of beyond with all of the usual tropes. Today's treats are both from 1981, smack dab in the midst of the golden age of slashers. And they are Just Before Dawn from Jeff Lieberman and Scream from Byron Quisenberry. Now that we know who everyone is and what it's all about, let's cut the chase and get right into Just Before Dawn. A drunk called Ty and his nephew Vachel are fooling around in an abandoned church when Ty notices a smirking figure staring at him through a hole in the roof. After going out to investigate, Ty notices the pair's truck thundering towards a tree which then crashes. When hearing the commotion, Vachel is suddenly surprised by the smirking man who stabs him in the groin with a machete, killing him and stealing his clothes. 
Ty runs away after witnessing the killer exiting the church, while somewhere else in the forest, a camper van of teenagers arrives for a vacation, including Warren, his girlfriend Constance, Megan, her boyfriend Jonathan, and Daniel, Jonathan's brother. After a minor run-in with a deer, the group encounter a forest ranger called Roy for advice on where to go camping, only to be told sharply that it's not recommended. On the way up to their destination, Daniel spots someone in the trees, and they get out to look, only to be surprised by a decrepit-looking Ty, who's afraid of something pursuing him. While considering letting him aboard out of pity, they eventually leave him by the roadside, only to fail noticing a stowaway on the back of their vehicle. They reach a magnificent waterfall which they begin to explore, setting up their camp not too far away. Jonathan and Warren head back to the van to get the rest of their supplies, and by nightfall they've still not returned. When the remaining three begin to hear noises, they're suddenly shocked by Warren and Jonathan who are playing pranks on them, only for Constance to get annoyed. The next morning, after making up, Warren and Constance hear someone singing at the base of the waterfall, and after looking, they spot a little girl who runs away. Deciding to move on, the group narrowly pass a treacherous rope bridge over a gorge and decide to skinny dip in the lake at the bottom. As Megan and Jonathan fool around, they're watched by the little girl from before, who spots a grinning man getting into the water. As someone touches Megan playfully, she's horrified when she spots Jonathan on the shore, causing her to panic and swim rapidly towards him. As night falls, Roy becomes aware that his horse is getting agitated, only to discover a drunk tie in his horse trough, who tells him of Rachel's death. As the teens begin to party at their campfire that night, a shot rings out and a small family, including the singing girl, emerges from the bushes, who warn them at gunpoint to leave the area. Ignoring the warning, the group spend the night, when Megan notices in the morning that her makeup is missing. When Jonathan goes to look for it, he encounters the girl, named Mary, who tells him that her mother and father dislike them going skinny dipping. After she kisses him, Jonathan tries to gently get her off, but she flees in frustration, only to suddenly run away from something else. After Jonathan assumes that she's afraid of the rope bridge, he demonstrates how to go across it, only to encounter the grinning man who cuts into his hand with a machete and then subsequently severs the bridge, causing Jonathan to fall into the water. Struggling to climb out due to his injured hand, he nonetheless makes it back to the top, but gets kicked back into the river by the killer where he dies. Daniel wanders off to take pictures and comes across the abandoned church, while Warren and Constance go fishing in the stream nearby, only to be shocked at Jonathan's corpse, which tumbles into them. As Megan and Daniel do some mock modelling pictures, Daniel notices a figure nearby, and assuming it's Jonathan, pretends to kiss Megan only to be surprised at the last minute when the killer shoves a machete into his gut. A terrified Megan runs into the nearby church and hides amongst the pews, looking out of the window to see the killer taking pictures with Daniel's camera. She fails to notice behind her another identical killer, revealed to be a set of twins, who cuts Megan down while the other brother snaps pictures of her. Constance and Warren continue to look around for their friends, now convinced that they're dead, only to encounter Mary's family from before, who continue to ward them off suspiciously. As night falls again, the pair have little hope for their friend's return, so Warren offers to go find the keys to their camper, which were in Jonathan's pockets. Finding his corpse mysteriously propped up against a tree, he manages to grab it from his pockets and heads back to the campsite. Meanwhile, Roy has arrived at Mary's house where he's met with denials of seeing the campers, despite Mary trying to protest otherwise. 
after Roy leaves, her parents scold her for trying to go against their family, revealing that the two twins are Mary's older brothers, whom their father brands as the devil. Alone, Constance begins to panic when she hears Jonathan's whistle being blown around her, startled when one of the brothers attacks her with a machete. She hurriedly climbs a tree and manages to evade the lunatic, only for him to start chopping the tree down with his machete. Roy meets up with a disorientated Warren, and the pair follow the sounds of Constance's screams, where they shoot her attacker, killing him instantly. After sending the pair off to leave the area, Roy leaves, and while Warren prepares some of their possessions to put away, Constance puts on some makeup and has some newfound confidence in their situation. Suddenly, the other twin violently attacks Warren and slices him in the abdomen, causing Constance to fly into a berserk rage and jumping on the killer's back. She is eventually put into a near-fatal bear hug, only to get the last laugh and punches her fist right down his throat, slowly and surely choking him to death. As dawn breaks, Mary arrives, only to flee at the sight of her dead brother, while Warren begins to cry uncontrollably at all that has happened. Ah, that's better. I guess you're looking to find your way out of here. No, sir, we're doing just fine. We're going up the mountain to do some camping. <laughs> only a fool would do that. Well, we got five of them in here. <laughs> But there's no campsite up there, especially with ladies along. Oh, well, we don't have to worry with a big, strong forest ranger to protect us, do we? Yeah. Well, I can't let you go Sir, up there. Sir, <laughs> hold on, hold on a second. See, the boy here's a land bear, and we're going up to look over the back 40. That D don't mean nothing. That mountain can't read. <laughs> any of you done any serious climbing before? Yeah, ten years. It's okay, I'll steer him away from the poison ivy. Yeah. It ain't just poison ivy I'm talking about, son. At least tell me where you're going, so that when you don't come back, I'll know how to fill out the report. Silver Lake. What's with Silver Lake? That's not on the property. I know. What do you want? Smokey the Bear coming around showing us how to pee at our campfires? <laughs> Just Before Dawn is one of those really surprising slashes that devise a lot of the usual rules and still ends up being quite a decent example of its ilk. Focusing on the exploits of a gang of teenagers who are in the Oregon mountains, the film combines the rather tried-and-tested inbred hillbilly killers from the works of Toby Hooper and Wes Craven, with the quaint cinematography, endearing characters, and rural menace of something like Deliverance. Let's first talk, though, about how Just Before Dawn actually came to be. It was originally a script entitled The Tennessee Mountain Murders, penned by Jonas Middleton, who'd written and directed several adult films like Cherry Blossom and Illusions of a Lady in the 70s. Writing a story about a set of twin killers in the country, he eventually added a more vociferous religious overtone to the work and retitled it The Last Ritual. In this original treatment, there were six campers who fall afoul of the two twins who more actively involve their family into their sick games. 
Megan was originally flung from a cliff, and in the film's final act, Constance was to be married in a twisted ritual whereby she'd be forced to handle venomous snakes by the brothers. When Lieberman became attached to the project, he wished to remove all of the religious context, so he rewrote it page by page until we had the version of the film that we have today, now entitled Just Before Dawn. The rope bridge segment was initially met with negativity from the producers who wanted to save some money, so they vied heavily for the scene to be written out, but Lieberman was insistent on keeping it in. It was on this bridge that the original script also dictated would be the moment of revealing that there were in fact two twin brothers perpetrating the murders. Jonathan was to be attacked from one side and inadvertently bump into an identical killer at the other end. The brothers also had names in this original draft, dubbed Lucas and Luther, though in the final version their names are never mentioned. Jonathan's character was also written slightly differently too, such as purposefully flirting with Mary upon meeting her rather than the opposite. After this final version was approved, filming commenced in 1980 at Silver Falls State Park in Oregon. It was the middle of the spring too, so the crew didn't encounter many issues in terms of weather, though the shoot was sometimes an arduous 15 hours a day, mostly due to the film's low budget. A lot of the film's establishing shots and landscape features rely on the intensely beautiful mountains and forest areas of Oregon, highlighted by the fine weather, but one thing which wasn't so natural was the church, which was purpose-built for the film's use. Which is quite surprising, really, because it does actually look rather ancient, and they easily got away with it. It wasn't all completely rosy, though, as the film encountered a few hiccups here and there, one of which was the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens, which the cast and crew thankfully avoided due to being on a day trip at the Oregon coast. Chris Lemon, who played Jonathan, also performed quite a dangerous manoeuvre when climbing the ropes during his death scene, when just nearby was a treacherous drop into a chasm, made even more dangerous by the strong river current. The equally dangerous rope bridge segment used body doubles and stuntmen instead of the actual actors, so that was much less of an issue despite still being inherently dangerous. Inexplicably, when it came time to shoot the scene of Megan and Jonathan skinny-dipping, several strangers arrived on set hoping to get a glimpse of Jamie Rose's nubile body, leading to rumours that the scene's details had been mentioned to local forest rangers and therefore spread throughout the area. There was also a strange incident of the set's lighting going out completely in the middle of a night shoot, leaving the cast and crew in darkness. During the few minutes of confusion when the crew tried to fix them, one of the producers jokingly yelled out, let there be light, only for the lights to suddenly return. Apparently, the crew were unable to find the fault in question, and it's unknown exactly why they ceased to function in the first place. Another minor incident happened when Ralph Seymour, who played Daniel, was filming his death scene by stabbing, in which the small camera around his neck flew vertically upwards and bashed him in the face as he fell to the ground. The pained expression was then rather authentic as a result, but he wasn't seriously injured. The film's bizarre final scene, in which Constance rams her fist down the throat of one of the killers, was devised by Lieberman, who wanted to have a death scene that was unique. It was achieved using a large prosthetic over the actor's chin, with the director's wife standing in for Deborah Benson, who shoved her hand into the prosthetic. As slasher films go, though, Just Before Dawn has some bloody brilliant highlights, which are not entirely in line with the genre either. Firstly, the setting of the film is sort of tried and tested, being in the middle of so much rural greenery and isolated mountainside. There's more than a few hints of John Borman's deliverance, with the heavy clashes of city dwellers and country folk in a maelstrom of escalating violence. 
There's also the nastiness and effective antagonism that feels ripped straight from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Hills of Eyes, though director Lieberman claims to have not seen these examples before he started filming. Still, there's enough of the influence from stuff like James Bryan's Don't Go in the Woods and even Savage Weekend to establish the film as part of the whole backward slasher camp. The setting in this example, though, is particularly pretty, with lush foliage, grand tree lines and outstanding waterfalls. The film's cinematography really captures the natural beauty of this landscape too, giving us some really breathtaking shots of bleeding sunsets, picturesque waters and rustic woodlands. Lieberman himself admits that the works of Ingmar Bergman were heavily inspirational in the composition of some of the shots. Not often in a slasher film of this ilk is the location utilised so beautifully. Not only that, but this is also one of those few slashers, like Madman last week, where the characters are actually quite decent and likeable. They're a far cry from the expected annoying saplings that usually grace these sorts of films, and there's a real sense of friendship and interpersonal interactions they have that is endearing to watch. Warren seems to be a fairly typical towny sort of guy, with a love of beer and pranking his girlfriend. He's smart, he's unafraid to apologise if he's done something wrong, and he genuinely tries to help when the whole situation crumbles. He unfortunately, though, finds the whole thing way out of his depth, and by the end of the film has undergone a transformation in which he's been broken down mentally, unable to cope with the escalating violent scenario that he's in. He notably babbles, begins to imagine that his friends have survived when it's clear that they're dead, freezes on the spot when confronted, and even breaks down in tears when Constance is able to finally kill their attacker. Not often do you have this realistic depiction of trauma with male characters, as they're traditionally the saviours, unflinching in danger, and certainly too masculine to display emotions like fear or sadness. Constance, on the other hand, does a complete 180 of this behaviour, she initially seems like a bit of a scaredy cat, putting herself down because she doesn't have the fortitude to pick up a knife when it seems that the group are in danger. When it turns out that Warren and Jonathan are simply playing a prank, she takes this a lot harsher than she thought because she has this low self-esteem about her bravery. As the film goes on and her friends begin to disappear, Constance is notably the one who reads the situation correctly and assumes that the worst outcome has happened with their friends, while Warren is still ambivalent about the severity of the situation. She gets chased by one of the killers in a tense sequence where she climbs a tree and has to suffer the attacker chopping it down slowly. Soon after this, she has an almost angel of death type motivation, where she dons her friend's makeup inexplicably and seems to be suddenly a lot more resilient. This is only proven when the pair are attacked a final time and Constance actively fights against him, while Warren is frozen to the spot. Things get rather primal too, as she scratches him, bites him, climbs on his back before ultimately ramming her fist right down his throat, horribly choking him to death. There's a real catharsis to the scene too, as Constance has finally become the brave person that she knows herself to be, and becomes the hero of the story as a result. The fact that the expected gender tropes of having a final girl, and the male figure who saves her, is just completely flipped in this film, with rather endearing results. It's just so refreshing to see a man act scared for once, and a brave woman to save him. Other characters, like Jonathan and Megan, are not nearly as notable, but they still bear those completely endearing qualities that make this film such a joy to watch. They care about each other immensely, they're quite street smart, and they're brave to tackle their adventure, and when they're skinny dipping, they're quite playful and tender with each other. 
Even when Mary is introduced and tries to heavily flirt with Jonathan, ending in a kiss, Jonathan breaks it off, with his loyalties firmly with Megan. Again, quite nice to see, as the usual slasher jerk would have no qualms cheating on their significant other. Even Megan, while pretending playfully to kiss Daniel, has her faithfulness firmly with her boyfriend. The whole group's consideration as a whole is rather altruistic, as they seriously consider bringing the drunken tie along with them, only to then decide against it. And even though they do this, they give the man some food to ensure that he doesn't starve in the middle of the wilderness. Even Roy's character is surprising to an extent, as he painstakingly looks after delicate plants and keeps a horse, which suggests that he just lives in the woods as a resident. But when push comes to shove, he's revealed to be a forest ranger and a tough one at that, travelling for a long time to save the kids from their plight. Mary is the kind of Ruby-esque character from The Hills Have Eyes, who's part of the antagonist group by blood and by proxy, but completely disagrees with their murderous actions. Mary's family, the Logans, are a family of inbreds, probably the most stereotyped thing about the whole film, who have borne two twin sons who are both menacingly murderous and allowed to roam free. Mary's father and mother, whose familiar connection is actually unknown, whether they're father and daughter or a brother and sister, allow the carnage to continue because family is more important to them. Having a blood connection means you tolerate any kind of behaviour, which of course is massively hypocritical as they deny Mary of anything remotely age-appropriate, considering that she's now majorly into adolescence and wants to experiment with boys. I feel it's a little nod to the cultural dichotomy of America, who's more than happy to showcase any sort of violence and bloodshed in movies, but gets way more bothered conservatively about sex or even swear words. The twins themselves are rather malevolent figures, having no dialogue except for giggling and gasping and towering over the other characters like vicious giants. Having a penchant for using machetes and stealing the clothes of their victims, the twins are very reminiscent of the hick killers from stuff like Texas Chainsaw and Deliverance, evoking that palpable sense of menace from bizarre characters from the deep country. The fact that these guys are so huge as well really adds to their screen presence, more so when you discover that it's actually a pair of twins rather than just the one. The film's violence is also rather well done, but contrary to how the film's general reception is, the film is actually not that bloody in comparison to its contemporaries. There's an extremely brutal crotch hacking in the beginning, which is probably the most graphic moment in the film, where a machete is stabbed through Vachel's crotch and it exits from his buttocks. Really nasty and well done, but the rest of the film's deaths are notably subpar to this in terms of explicitness. Jonathan's death is more visually exciting due to the situation, as he's attacked on the rope bridge which the killer then cuts down. After having his hand nearly severed, he then struggles to get back on land and is kicked back in, killing him when he hits the water. Daniel has a machete stuck through his abdomen, Jason Voorhees style, which is also relatively gory, but then you have Megan's death which is completely off-screen. The remaining deaths of the film are relegated to the two brutal slayers, one of which is shot by Roy, but the other one is reserved for the rather intriguing death of having a fist rammed down the gob. While it's not particularly bloody, the sheer novelty of this death is just really exciting to watch, and it rounds off the action quite nicely as the film ends. Just Before Dawn, however, is a slasher film that doesn't really rely on the special effects to endear the viewer. It's much too pretty to look at to be just a mere bloodbath, 
The characters are really too laudable to be mere crush dummies for special effects, and the killers are marauding and creepy enough without the addition of gruesome splashes of offal. All in all, Just Before Dawn is just far too interesting and well-made to ignore. Despite being a little less bloody than expected, with some repetitive tropes and a familiar situation, the tender ensemble of characters, clever subversion of expected gender roles, and the breathtakingly awesome locations and cinematography, you'd be such a silly bumpkin to skip this utter gem. Veteran actor George Kennedy played the role of Roy McLean, who'd started off his career in the 50s doing various TV shows in the US. He also appeared in 1964's Straight Jacket with Joan Crawford, The Dirty Dozen, The Boston Strangler, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, 1980's Death Ship, The Cat Caper, The Uninvited, uh, 1990's Braindead, Dennis the Menace Strikes Again, and he was even one of the action figures in the toy action film Small Soldiers. He unfortunately passed away in 2016 at the age of 91. Mike Kellen played the role of Ty, and we've spotted him a few months back as the Grumpy Mel on 1983's Sleepaway Camp. Jonathan was played by Chris Lemon, who popped up in 1997's Wishmaster, while Greg Henry played the role of Warren, who was in Brian De Palma's Body Double, 1999's Payback, 2006 horror comedy Slither, Guardians of the Galaxy 1 and 2, and even video game Lollipop Chainsaw. Constance was played by actress Deborah Benson, who cropped up later in TV show Knott's Landing and 1989's Mutiny on the Bounty, whilst Ralph Seymour, who played Daniel, later appeared in a few miscellaneous projects like Meatballs Part 2, Ghoulies, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Killer Party, Rain Man and 1997's The Relic. Mary Cat Logan was played by young actress Katie Powell, who later reappeared in 1994's Milk Money while Charles Bartlett, who played the small role of Vachel, became primarily a voice actor in stuff like Babe and its sequel, and 2006's Happy Feet. He also worked on additional voices and looping on Pet Cemetery 2, Ants, and the 2014 Lego Movie. Lastly, there was Jamie Rose, who played Megan, who since appeared in multiple US TV shows like Grey's Anatomy, Criminal Minds, and NYPD Blue, as well as the horror comedy Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town, which was Billy Bob Thornton's first major screen role. Director Jeff Lieberman is no stranger to the Nasty Pasty show, as we covered his man-eating worm fest last year, 1976's Squirm. He also wrote the film along with Mark Arovich and Jonas Middleton, who both did little else, unfortunately, in the film world. Along with Middleton, who also produced the film, one of the others who funded the film was Doro Vlado Reljanovic, who worked on the Jaws rip-off Mako, Jaws of Death, in 1976, and even directed Faces of Death 6 and 7, which were, admittedly, mostly compilations of the previous film's most shocking scenes. Another producer was David Sheldon, who worked on Sheba Baby, the bear-themed Jaws rip-off Grizzly and its sequel, Grizzly 2, 1977's Day of the Animals, The Manitou, and the video nasty The Evil. He was also a prolific production executive on stuff like Frogs, Blackula, Black Mama, White Mama, Friday Foster, and Food of the Gods. Composer Brad Fiedel started what would be an illustrious career on video nasties like Suicide Cult and Terrorize. Post Just Before Dawn, though, he worked on The Terminator, Fright Night Part 1 and 2, Night Visions, Terminator 2 Judgment Day, and True Lies. 
brothers, Dean and Joel King, did the cinematography. This is Dean's only credit, but Joel had done a bunch of other things like 1983's Frightmare, Brian De Palma's Carrie, The Beastmaster, The Mighty Ducks, and its sequel, D2, The Mighty Ducks. Editor Robert Q. Lovett had worked on The Taking of Pelham 123, while assistant director Fred Berner had worked in the same capacity on the haunted house video Nasty, The Nesting. The other assistant director, Bruce A. Simon, worked in the same role on another film that we've covered, 1984's Mutant. The film's special effects were done by Matthew W. Mungle, who'd worked already on Raw and Years of the Beast, also from 1981. He went on to the 1982 video nasty Pranks and the Section 3 nasty Mausoleum the following year. He then had a slew of horror projects like The Power, The Kindred, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, Class of 1999 and Single White Female. He then branched out into a much wider variety of productions like Natural Born Killers, Junior, Dumb and Dumber, Outbreak, Casper, Lost World Jurassic Park, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Dr. Doolittle, A Simple Plan, The Psycho Remake, I Still Know What You Did Last Summer, Deep Blue Sea, Bedazzled, Fast and Furious, etc. etc. There's far too many to note down, but Mungle was assisted by Kathy Shawkey, who'd worked on 1981's X-Ray and 1984's Crimes of Passion. Also in tow with the special effects was Richard E. Johnson from 1977's Future Cop, Danny Lester from Psycho 3, Batteries Not Included and The Burbs, and finally John Morello, who worked as a driver on films like AI Artificial Intelligence, The Lost World Jurassic Park, and 1998's Pauly. Released in November of 1981, Just Before Dawn very surprisingly garnered a positive reception from most critics, who focused on the film's bleak tone and picturesque cinematography. Unfortunately, it wasn't very commercially successful on its initial theatrical cycle, and it was instead passed around on the grindhouse circuits until its home video release. In other countries, the film has had several alternative titles. Like in Germany, it was known as Blutig Dammerung, which means Bloody Dusk, whilst in France they piggybacked on the success of John Borman's classic by dubbing the film Survivance. In the UK, it passed uncut for a 1981 cinematic exhibition, and in 1983 it got a VHS release from Rank Video, right in the midst of the spat between the government and the video dealers. Theoretically, this is the sort of material that got attention during the nasties, but Rank Video didn't release any of those official video nasties, though they did release that instance of bloodbath that probably would have been picked up. The film was also passed uncut at the cinemas, so any seizure would have been for naught really, as a prosecution would have been extremely unlikely. The film was re-released legitimately in 1986 from Missing in Action video, though due to the increased vigilance in regards to horror films after the Video Recordings Act, the film was cut by seven seconds, removing the majority of the opening machete to the crotch sequence. It would be passed uncut again in 2005 for a DVD release from Odeon Entertainment, and in the last few years, it's got a shiny, sleek new Blu-ray release from our very own 88 films. Now that we've done Just Before Dawn, we can progress onto our next outing, Byron Quisenberry's Scream.
At an unknown room, some porcelain figurines bleed after seemingly being decapitated, looked on by a sinister one that's holding a meat cleaver as the clock strikes midnight. Sometime later, a large group of adventurers are paddling downstream in Rio Grande on vacation, docking at the outskirts of an abandoned shantytown called Talinqua, which they decide to explore. One of the group, Laura, begins to get an eerie feeling about the place, causing her friend Adriana some concern whilst another called Bob bemoans the state of the shacks, only for his sister Marion and their father John to tell him just to enjoy himself. The overweight Lou begins to struggle with the demanding walk, while his friend Andy manages quite easily. The trip leaders, Ross and Al, discuss the state of their office back home before night falls and the group settles in, as a mysterious fog begins to emerge from some of the buildings. In the middle of the night, it soon becomes clear that someone is prowling around and stalking the holidaymakers. As Ross wanders the dirt path drinking a beer, he suddenly disappears when Janice is doing a patrol, only for her to discover his freshly hanged corpse in the doorway of a barn. Hearing her screams, the entire group awakens and convenes in a temporary kitchen, where Bob publicly accuses Al for his lack of reaction. As the mood sours quite quickly... Al goes out to the jail building where they've stashed their beer to grab a can, only to be attacked by an unknown assailant and killed. The group becomes ever more panicked, especially when John wanders into one of the cabins and is hacked to death with a cleaver by the killer. Waiting until daybreak, the remaining nine vacationers head to their boats, only to find them destroyed and cast adrift on the water. Heading back to the shantytown, Lou gets stuck in one of the buildings, only to feel a sudden presence breathing in the room, and escaping shortly afterwards. Suddenly, two young guys on bikes, Jerry and Rod, drive through the town, with one of the trip's guides, called Stan, swapping with Rod so that he can go drive off for help. Rod stays with the remaining group, then, while they eat their lunch. Deciding to wait for Stan to get back with the help, they remain budged in tight and settle down to sleep as night falls, with Lou suddenly waking up when his radio mysteriously turns off. Failing to find anyone around him, Lou wanders off, and after being scared by a tarantula, he backs up into a corpse which falls on top of him. Bumping into the others after running away, the group reconvene in the saloon where the coffee is, when Rod suddenly spots his reflection in a mirror where he's suddenly covered in blood. All of a sudden, Rod is blasted through a door, killing him and disturbing the others. Bob tries to take action by assuming control and setting up sound traps using the multitude of empty cans lying around, but he only manages to catch a possum, much to Andy and Rudy's chagrin. While sleeping, Janice suddenly becomes disturbed by a sound and runs away with the killer in hot pursuit with an axe, only for her to trip over the sound traps and knock herself out. Becoming increasingly more paranoid, the group begin to hear strange noises outside, and looking, they spot a dog and two horses, carrying with them a mysterious stranger and the dead body of Jerry, the other biker. Introducing himself as a former sailor, the mysterious man explains that his former captain was a cruel man who relocated to the small town many years ago and gifted him with a compass. Almost without a word, the stranger on horseback leaves them again and trundles off, when they all notice a strange light coming from across the street in the sheriff's office. 
Investigating, they find only a rat, which freaks Adriana out. Rudy returns to the saloon alone to grab an extra light and returns to barricade the doors and keep anyone from getting in, while the killer lurks around outside. After Bob shouts at Lou for pacing around, the killer tries to bust in, only for it to be revealed as Stan, who is injured. Andy runs to get a first aid kit, and once inside the saloon, he's attacked by the killer, who slams him in the face with an axe. While outside, Bob is also attacked and killed with a scythe, witnessed by Lou, who hurriedly tries to shut the door. As the killer continues to try and gain access, he is successful in grabbing Lou and is about to deliver the killing blow when the mysterious stranger appears and fires a pistol at the assailant, revealed to be an invisible presence of some kind, who drops the scythe as a truck with two out-of-towners arrives on the scene. Lou coughs and regains consciousness as the stranger's compass lies on the floor. Back in the unknown room, it's revealed that the killer was the ghost of the cruel sea captain, long deceased since the 1800s. Don't you think they should be back by now? We're just going to do nothing? We've been gone an awful long time. What are we going to do? Well, can't we do something? Oh, can't we do something? Oh, this is driving me crazy. What do you suggest? It'd be insane for us to go out there. We're okay as long as we stay inside. We should be back by now. Do you suppose anything's happened to Stan? How long would it take them to get there? It depends. Maybe two hours. It's been over six now. I'm aware of that. Then that's it. Something's happened to them. It's not a very positive attitude. Well, you can take your positive attitude and you can stuff it. Listen, mister, you can just kiss off. You've been a pain in the neck ever since we got here. I don't take that kind of lip from anybody, let alone from any damn female. Well, this female sure as hell isn't going to take it from you. Stop! Please stop. Haven't we had enough pain? Why do we have to hurt each other? Oh boy. You often believe you've scoured the metaphorical barrel for all the slasher films of a particular era. Of course, despite a technically finite number of films that have been made, we're still often surprised by odd little ones that somehow found the light of day. Even more commonly, these individual hidden treasures can actually have something unique about them that makes it worth the discovery and subsequent reappraisal. Then you have something like Scream, which you still wonder how it got made and the story behind it, but when the title has a particularly devoted niche fan base, you really begin to search long and hard for answers. Scream is ultimately not a great slasher at all. It's not even a particularly accomplished piece of filmmaking, committing some of the most grievous offences and breaking some of those essential rules for making a decent film. It comes across mostly as a painfully insipid missed opportunity of a movie that has a solid framework ensured for success 
that's only ground down into meal by constantly woeful techniques and storytelling. But in spite of all this, there is something there. As much as it pains me to say it, there is something in the ether around this film. There's a kind of phantom lurking around in the background that could have saved the day had the production utilised it so much better. But alas, Scream fails to evoke anything substantial enough to warrant major attention. Quisenberry, who was mainly a stuntman, was given an opportunity to helm his own film, and due to it being 1980, right in the eye of the storm of the golden era of slasher films, he decided to take that template and form his own body count movie. Deciding to go for a much more mystery and enigma-based approach, Quisenberry quickly devised a rough, unfinished script entitled Butcher, Baker, Candlestick Maker that was based on Ten Little Indians and other Agatha Christie capers and started production almost immediately in 1980. Presumably, due to his inexperience, Quisenberry was unable to secure much funding at all, resulting in a very snappy 11-day shoot that barely gave the crew enough time to get anything substantial. To make matters worse, Quisenberry's unfinished script was all they had to go on, which was still missing the film's climax, and therefore the identity of the killer. The film was shot in sequence, with the opening and closing shots filmed in Quisenberry's own apartment, while the rest of the film was shot at Lake Piru for the non-ghost town shots, and the Paramount Pictures Movie Ranch in California stepping in for the strange western town of Tolinqua. This was notably the same location where the video Nasty Pigs was set, but unlike that film, Scream doesn't really move location once it's settled in. This was again due to the incredibly minuscule budget, which was bolstered by the production crew forging deals with other companies like Nike and Dr Pepper to use their products in the film for monetary compensation. It still didn't stretch that far, though, as they could only afford actor Woody Strode for a single day, whilst Greg Palmer, who played Ross, was only available for two days. The film's opening shot includes little figurines of a butcher, baker and candlestick maker in reference to the film's original title, which were personally crafted by a friend of Quisenberry's wife. Their significance, though, has since been lost when the title was changed, as they seem to have little purpose in the final film other than contribute to the atmosphere. Despite the picture having zero resources, they actually didn't encounter any major issues with filming, other than actor Joe Elaine being terrified of spiders, so his moment where a tarantula crawls on him was performed instead by Quisenberry. As far as the film goes, though, it's an agonisingly slow experience, with a heavy emphasis on long panning shots of the ghost town, thickly cloying music, and a whole wealth of shadows and darkness. Fairly effective in small shavings, Scream seems to commit the cardinal sin of having so much of this atmospheric dread on display that it ultimately becomes a drudgery to watch. In fact, Scream commits more than a few sins in its relatively short runtime, but the arse-achingly slow pace is just the tip of the iceberg, really. It's a real shame as the opening looks so promising, with an obscure scene of a clock striking midnight, some creepy dolls, and the arrival of a large group of victims to a remote location. In slasher territory, this is everything that the audience wants, but it slowly, slowly becomes apparent that we're in for major disappointment. As Almost as soon as night falls, we get the first of many nocturnal stalk and slash sequences, which do little other than wander half-acidly through the streets of Tolinqua with a fog machine and some reduced lighting, while a synthesised drone plays on in the background. 
Annoying, really, because this would be perfect in small doses to break up the action. But the sheer undeniable presence of it in this film only highlights the fact that Scream has very little to no action at all. For a fairly respectable body count of seven, Scream makes it probably the least amount of fun by featuring no on-screen violence in any sense. We see establishing shots of weapons like a scythe, a meat cleaver and an axe. We see them being removed by the unknown assailant. We even see them out and about being wielded by the enigmatic assassin. But we never see the weapon connect with anybody. We don't even really see an attack of any kind. We mainly hear a shriek or two. Occasionally there's a struggle that ensues on screen. But we ultimately just end up with a bland dead body. There's not even any blood to assuage our depraved cravings only a light sprinkling on the cleaver to insinuate that there's been any violence at all. Honestly, there's more blood in John Carpenter's Halloween. Even the characters don't help proceedings by being so bland. Even by slasher standards, the characters here are virtually automatons who react in a predetermined way, even if that way is contrary to normal behaviour. Instead of all just staying together, each individual just seeks any reason to be separated and wander off to be slaughtered. And while I appreciate this is usually slasher victim behaviour, the fact that an unnamed cowboy turns up with one of their dead friends on his horse doesn't elicit any reaction other than to invite him inside for tea. I mean, it really defies imagination. It's particularly irritating, as the acting performances are not even the worst of the genre. It's just that the script is so basic and insipid that there's nothing substantial that the characters can offer. Even the establishing of characters is so glossed over quite quickly that you spend a lot of the movie wondering exactly who is who and their relation to each other. And that's even if a character is even named. So many of them aren't even addressed by their name, so I literally had to figure it out afterwards using the film's credits. There's a handful who stand out, like Bob, who's the token irritating little shit who complains long and hard about the situation. Spouting lines like, I don't take that kind of lip from anyone, especially from a female. There's also Lou, who seems to be the comic relief, with actions plucked straight from a Scooby-Doo cartoon. He becomes ever more freaked out by random occurrences like a ghostly wind and tarantulas, subsequently eating food out of nervousness, much to the belittling stares of his companions. The mysterious cowboy too would be rather interesting if his interactions were in any way normal but he virtually ignores the protagonist's questions, spouts a small paragraph soliloquy, and promptly buggers off. The frankly stupid behaviour of the protagonists and the incidental characters wouldn't be so bad if anything in the film was explained to a satisfactory degree, but both the situation, the character's motivations, and the whole killer's identity slash motive is all left scattered to the winds, with virtually no explanation for any of it by the film's conclusion. I'm all for cinema that doesn't hold your hand and explain everything with liberal exposition dumps, but this is an utter joke. Not one frame of the film reveals the killer's appearance until the end of the film, where it seems that the killer is actually invisible anyway. I mean, really? The cowboy stranger then turns up and fires a few shots, causing the scythe to drop to the floor, so I guess the phantom killer has been stopped? Nothing is explained at all especially as an elderly pair soon swoop in to divert our attention, only for them too to be abandoned in favour of the strange figurines from the film's opening. I mean, I guess they're meant to be rescuers of the main characters or something? 
The film's closing shot implies that the killer was a long-dead sea captain, but it's all so vague, so bland, and so half-acidly fed to you that it ruins any goodwill that you might have had towards the film's small list of positives. For a film that demands such a massive investment of attention and forgiveness from its audience, it's so reluctant to return the favour with a lack of any on-screen thrills, decent characters to get behind, or even a simple explanation for why these killings are even happening. On that count, Scream fails miserably on most counts as a slasher, a horror, and even a film in general. There's no final girl, no nudity, no gore, no compelling killer, a criminally large amount of surviving victims, and no real reason to enjoy the film. Yet, I hate myself for saying it, but the stalk and slash sequences are relatively well done, and there's certainly an atmosphere to the film that better films actually fail to accomplish. It's just such a shame that the film is ultimately too boring a price to pay for such a paltry reward and even an avid slasher fan like me will struggle to find any fondness for such a piece of hard work. Pepper Martin plays the cantankerous Bob, and he had a small role in Superman 2, and later cropped up in Return to Horror High in 1987. John was played by Hank Warden, who's had small roles in Smokey and the Bandit and Bedknobs and Broomsticks, but is probably most recognisable for his role as the incredibly slow, ineffective waiter from David Lynch's Twin Peaks. Ethan Wayne, who played Stan, was mainly a stunt actor who worked on Return of the Living Dead and Baby Geniuses, while Al V. Moore, who played Al, was later a voice actor on the Studio Ghibli film Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, and he also appeared in House 3, The Horror Show. Woody Strode, who appeared as the mysterious stranger, apparently named Charlie Winters in the credits, had been in a multitude of recognisable films, like Once Upon a Time in the West, Kingdom of the Spiders, and 1984's Jungle Warriors. Jerry was played by John Nowak, who was primarily a stuntman on things like The Towering Inferno, Critters, House 3 The Horror Show, Army of Darkness, and several of the Star Trek films. Finally, Maggie, who's presumably the old lady who rescues him at the end, was played by Bella Brook, who had a small role in 1980's Alligator. But quite frankly, I'm surprised that something like IMDb was able to keep track of these things. The film really makes no effort at all to establish the character names, so I found it just so confusing. Director Byron Quisenberry wasn't particularly cut out for directing or acting. His main talent was in stunts, in which he worked on the video nasty Enter the Devil, which he also appeared in as an actor, 1983's Nightmares, Return of the Living Dead, and 1987's Program to Kill. He also wrote and produced Scream, assisted in the latter department by a large number of co-financiers. There was Hal Buchanan, Robert Whitty, Richard L. Diamond, Larry Quisenbury, and C.L. Hoff all of whom did nothing else, with the exception of Hoff, who worked on the makeup of this film, as well as being the caterer and the nurse. She also happened to be the director Quisenbury's wife. There was also Gary Jensen, who was mainly a stunt guy, who worked on the X-Men films, in the line of Fire, Dogma, and The Usual Suspects, while another was Richard Pepin, who worked on countless straight-to-video releases, and he did the cinematography on Scream as well. The admittedly spooky soundtrack was composed by Joseph Conlon, who's since gone on to stuff like NCIS, 2013's Spiders 3D, and countless different TV movies. On the project, too, were Fred Allison as assistant director, 
B.W. Kestenberg on editing, and Richard Miller on special effects, all of whom worked on absolutely nothing else at all. It's unfortunately just that kind of film, folks. The film was released in US cinemas in 1981, in the absolute golden age of slashers, and it received utterly abysmal reviews. It barely grossed a million dollars before the end of the run, and subsequently went on to video from Vestron in the mid-80s. Despite having a relatively small but loyal fan base, the film is often dubbed as one of the worst slasher films of the decade, due to its languid pacing, lack of explicitness, and confusing identity of the killer with a bland ending. In 1988, Variety magazine termed it one of the crummiest horror films made during the late unlamented boom of five years ago. It really says something when a slasher can be released literally in peak season of the genre and be received so poorly. Due to the obscurity and ineffectiveness, Scream skipped the UK cinemas entirely and went straight on to pre-cert tape from VTC, under the title The Outing. In spite of the fact that VTC had released loads of the video nasty films, I strongly and vehemently doubt that Scream would have been picked up at all. The cover was very generic, has only a little bit of blood on it, probably more than in the film itself, and the general quality was so bland that the police would certainly not have even been interested. It's not surfaced in the UK since, and has never even been rated by the BBFC but I imagine that it probably received a 12 certificate or something, just because it really is that ordinary. If you're an avid fan, however, you can import it from the US, but I, for one, won't be clamouring for the Blu-ray HD remaster anytime soon. Unless they get a really good documentary or something. I'd be more interested in seeing that than actually watching this film ever again. And that's it for this episode, so apologies for the fact that this one was delayed by a week, but luckily because of this it means that you can also enjoy our other episode out this week on Reptile Gialli, two Italian jello pictures with a reptile in the title. We're covering a lizard in a woman's skin and the iguana with the tongue of fire, so any jello enthusiasts should be well at home. This should also be available right now, so please don't hesitate to tune into that one when you can. In the meantime, did you enjoy the show? Have you seen these films? Do you have an opinion on them? Are you one of those fans of Scream, more importantly? Any feedback would be greatly appreciated, either on iTunes, or you can get in touch through Facebook or Twitter. I'm always up for a chat on horror films in general, so please don't be shy. And if anyone wants to debate Scream as a legitimate piece of horror cinema, I'm most interested. Because I actually just want to see what fans of it actually feel like. By the time this episode comes out, next week's 65th episode will be due out next, covering the theme of supernatural girls. In next week's Cursed Elegy, we'll be exploring William Friedkin's The Exorcist and Lucio Fulci's Manhattan Baby. 
We've also got a bonus episode coming out to make up for all the delays lately, so you can catch a singular episode covering the Giallo, Black Belly of the Tarantula, very soon, as well as a Nasty Pasty competition coming up equally soon, with some prizes to be won. Now stay tuned for all this and more, but until you hear from me next, stay clear of the middle of nowhere, and try to avoid mad mountain twins and arse-achingly slow ghost sea captains. I'm sure that you can, though. Bye-bye, peeps! <laughs>